0: The law and the kingdom of God, as we're going to be working from this morning, Luke chapter 16, verses 14 through 18. It's, it's sandwiched between two, uh, two parables in the Gospel of Luke, in the 16th chapter specifically of the Gospel of Luke. Uh, the parable of the dishonest manager, which we looked at last week in verses 1 to 15, in 1 to 13 and then the parable of the rich man and Lazarus uh, in, in, chap- in verses 19 through 31, both of which deal quite a bit with with money and how you use your money and just being a good steward of the things that God has entrusted you and faithfulness and these kinds of things. And, and then these few verses are kind of like a, like a little grab bag of a few different uh, topics and a few different ideas that Jesus is kind of speaking about, um, specifically as he's kind of um, like reacting and responding with the Pharisees that are in his audience. So he, he tells the story of the parable of the dishonest manager, and, and like we'll see, the Pharisees are going to react to that, and Jesus is going to kind of begin a dialogue uh, with them. So we'll read through Luke chapter 16, verses 14 to 18, and then we will spend a few, t- few minutes considering it and discussing it together. It reads, uh, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, Heard all these things. That's referring to the parable of the dishonest manager. They heard all these things and they ridiculed him, and they said, "You." Or, and he said to them, "You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John, and since then the good news of the kingdom of God is preached." And everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you. We thank you for the gift of your word. It's an oft-overlooked privilege that we have to be able to read and experience the words of God, the mind of God, um, and so we thank you that you've spoken to us. We thank you that you sovereignly inspired um, men to write it, that you sovereignly preserved it as it was transmitted throughout the centuries, that you, uh, and we pray that you would sovereignly open our eyes, illumine our eyes, so that we can uh, see it and understand it and be changed by it. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Okay, verse 14. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. So just now, Jesus has, has told this parable where uh, there's this uh, dishonest manager. It's a guy who's stealing from his boss so that he can set himself up to have a comfortable life after he gets fired. And strangely enough, his boss commends him and says, Good job, uh, uh, that was, that was a, uh, an impressive move. And so Jesus' point um, in that parable seems to be that Christians... While they shouldn't uh, model this guy's dishonesty and his immorality, they should uh, model his shrewdness. They should think ahead as to what's coming in the next life, and they should prepare themselves for their next life now by leveraging the resources that they have at their disposal now to invest in uh, the next life. So, so, you know, be generous. You can't take your money with you to heaven uh, so you might as well use it now to bless others and to invest in relationships so that you can help people hear the gospel, so that you can be investing your temporal money into eternal things. That's what Jesus just said, and the Pharisees essentially kind of gather around and just say, what an idiot. Like, what you know, we love money. Like, it's a universal reality that money is awesome And this guy is saying that there's more important things than money. He's saying that that people are more important than money. He's saying that your soul is more important than money. He's saying that you should actually uh, part with your money for the sake of your soul and for the sake of other people. That's stupid. Why would anyone want to do do that? Interestingly enough, the Pharisees' uh, response to Jesus seems to escalate. Uh, throughout the course of the the Gospel of Luke, right? Uh, If you look through the Gospel of Luke, chapters 5, 6, and 7, the Pharisees are, like, looking on and observing, and they're kind of, like, wondering what's happening, maybe asking a question here or there, seeing if they can trap Jesus. Same thing in chapters 11, 12, 13, 14. They're, like, gathering, looking, listening, observing, maybe a question. Uh, And then in in 15, uh, specifically chapter 15, verse 2, we see that the Pharisees begin to, to grumble. Right, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So now it's like it's gone from this kind of covert listening and wondering and and, you know, reluctance or or skepticism to this overt, like verbal, you know, you've offended us and they're starting to speak out. And then here in sixteen, it's escalating even more. It's now it's like it's agitated. It's it's you know, the, the volume is raising, it's not just grumbling and murmuring, but it's ridiculing. And so the Pharisees are starting to uh, become disruptive because they love money more than they love God. They love what money can buy for them more than they love what God is for, for them, right? So they, you know, money can buy any number of things. They, they love um, comfort, right? Money can buy you comfort. It can get you all of the things that you want in this life and gadgets and, and you know, Car, house, you know. If I have enough money, I can arrange my life with all of the possessions that I want to be exactly the way that I I want it. Or they love uh, security, right? Right. I I I love money because it will uh, afford me comfort, or I love money because it'll afford me security. If I have enough money, if I have a big enough war chest. Then uh, I'm, I might not need to get all of the newest, coolest stuff. I might not have to have a completely. I might not need to have a completely comfortable life, but I can have a life that's secure and a life where I, you know, have enough money to last this lifetime and f- five more, twenty more lifetimes after this, to make sure that I'll never need anything from anyone. I'll never have to ask. Anyone for anything I'll never have to depend on anyone except myself I'll never have to rely on God or anyone else for anything So we love money because it gives us comfort we love money because it gives us security in the case of these pharisees We love money because it gives us status Right Jesus says you are those who justify yourselves before men but God knows your hearts so they love money but uh seemingly they they're they're using money they're leveraging money so that they can make so they can be justified before other men people can can uh, love them and think highly of them right Every, i want everyone to know how much money i have i want everyone to know how successful i am i want everyone to think highly of me and to be impressed with me because i really really care what people think of me and Jesus says, you're, you're striving to be just, justified means, uh, you know, shown to be right, right? If, you, if you're justified in an argument, then you're kind of vindicated, you're shown to be right in that. So, so he's saying, you guys are, you guys want everyone to think you're right, you want everyone to think that you're smart, you want everyone to think that you're, you're awesome, but the reality is God doesn't care about those things god doesn 't care about the things that people care about when they 're trying to assess your worth and your value and whether or not you are worthy of their respect right People might look at the outside people might look at how much money you have people might look at any number of things God looks at your heart right and, and it's not it 's not just that that um it 's not just that people use a different it 's not just that like if you uh, invest in the things that will impress people and that will vindicate you to people, then God is not necessarily impressed by those things. It's actually that God uh, hates those things. Like that those things are, are you know, for, for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Not what is exalted among men is not necessarily exalted in the sight of God, but what is exalted among men is actually an abomination in the sight of, of God. So Jesus is saying... People might be impressed with how much money you have. People might be impressed with a particular lifestyle that you live, but God is not. God sees through the kind of external veneer, and he sees to your, your heart. God is not necessarily concerned with how much money you have or how, money, how much money you, you don't have, right? You can have, you have a ton of money, and that's not necessarily good or bad. You can have little to no money. It's not necessarily good or bad. There's a, there's a righteous way to be rich where you... You know, you create and you, 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 know, you create things that are good for society and you make a bunch of money and you employ people and you pay them well and you treat them well and you make a lot of money and then you're generous with it. And then there's a wicked way to be rich where you are deceitful and you have shady business practices and you rip people off and you, you hoard all of your money. There's a righteous way to be poor, right, where you, you work hard and just for whatever reason you don't make a lot of money. But you try your best and you're generous with what you have uh, as much as you can be and you're living life in light of eternity. And then there's a wicked way to be poor where you resent other people because they have more than you and you demand and expect everything to to be given to you. And even though you have very little, you're still greedy and you still love money. Jesus says, God doesn't care what's in your bank account. God cares what's in your hearts. And these Pharisees are obsessed with making sure that everyone saw them and that everyone is impressed by them and that they're completely justified in the eyes of every single person. And Jesus says, that is a fool's errand. You are actually pursuing those things that are an abomination to God, those things that that God finds disgusting, God finds loathsome. It makes God nauseated and he wants to to, to vomit, right? Right? Uh, loving money and and, and desiring it more than anything else so that you can have status and that you can have comfort and you can have security makes God uh, sick to to his stomach. And in verse 16, the law and the prophets were until John and since then, the good news of the kingdom is preached and everyone forces his way into it, right? So, so if Jesus is rebuking these Pharisees for kind of living this worldly, living this, uh, you know, love of money kind of lifestyle where they want to be impressive to others and they want to have tons of money for all these things, Jesus is going to kind of set the paradigm for what godliness looks. If it doesn't look like love of money and it doesn't look like pandering to people to secure their approval, what does it look like? The law and the prophets were preached until... Essentially, Jesus says all of human history has kind of broken up into two big segments, uh, right? The, the time before Jesus came and the time now that Jesus has come. Those are kind of the two big segments. That's why our calendars are B.C. and A.D., right? The time before Jesus came and the time now that Jesus has, has come. And the time before Jesus came is largely represented by these two kind of big, uh, you know, Ideas, the law and the prophets. The law is the, the Torah. It's the first five books of the Bible, right? It, uh, God meets his people on Mount Sinai after he's saved them out of Egypt. He speaks to them. He gives them the Ten Commandments. He gives them uh, you know, his laws for how he wants them to live and how life works best, and he calls them to live in accordance with it. And then uh, the prophets. Um, Major prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, minor prophets like Malachi and Nahum and Obadiah um, and Jonah, right? These are, these are guys whose job is to declare God's word to God's people. So, so the prophets are essentially just reiterating the law. They, they are, uh, you know, speaking God's law back to God's people, reminding them of where they might have forgotten it or where they might have strayed from it. And Jesus is saying, Those things, the law and the prophets, they characterized life before Jesus came into the world, and and, and their role in history was largely anticipatory. Their their role in human history was to to point people forward to the coming Messiah. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul argues that the law's primary purpose was not to save sinners, but rather uh, it was to point sinners to their savior, to Jesus. It was to serve as a guardian or a tutor that, was, that its job is to watch over us until it hands custody over to someone else or to something else, namely to, to Jesus. And so the law shows us our flaws, it shows us our shortcomings, it shows us our need for a savior so that we will be ready, right? So that we'll be emotionally and psychologically and, and spiritually ready to trust in Christ when we uh, you know, are presented with an opportunity to do so. That's the law's job, prepare God's people and point them to God's savior. Same exact thing with the prophets, right? The prophets weren't there to tell them, hey, keep the law so that you can be justified by your works and by how well you keep the law. The prophets were there to tell people that they had turned away from God. They had violated God's law. They had worshiped other gods. They needed to repent. They needed to return to God. They needed to trust in God to save them. They needed to trust in God's Savior, Messiah, to to save them, right? God was going to save them, and they needed to trust him to do so. So the prophetic office, just like the law, was designed to point people to the coming Savior, the coming Messiah, Jesus. And so Jesus' point here in verse 16 is, inasmuch as the law and the prophets were these anticipatory devices that are intended to point people forward to the coming Messiah in as much as the law and the prophets, their job was to say, look forward to Jesus who is coming. Well, then John the Baptist is representative of those two ideas because that's all, that's, what he, that's what he did, right? The old covenant was in full effect, essentially all the way through the Old Testament and even into uh, the, the, the life of Jesus in the ministry of John the Baptist, I mean, in John 1, when we, see, when we meet John the Baptist, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And he's pointing forward to Jesus. He's saying, everyone look at Jesus. He's your Savior. He will save you. That is the entire purpose of the law and of the prophetic office, is to basically look at God's people and say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The Law and the Prophets have been doing it, now John the Baptist is doing it, and Jesus says, since then, so, so the Law and the Prophets and John the Baptist are all kind of pointing forward to this Messiah, Jesus, since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached. right? So, so Jesus is saying, when I came into the world, when, when the Messiah came into the world, there was a, a paradigm shift, there was a, a change that happened. We're, we kind of shifted out of the stage, out of out of this stage of anticipation and into a stage of 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 presentation or into a stage of proclamation Right so Jesus is not there saying look forward to God's kingdom that's coming in the future. Jesus is saying God's kingdom is here now. I am establishing the kingdom right now. Jesus is declaring the good news which literally means gospel. Jesus is declaring the gospel of the kingdom of God. I'm building a kingdom. I'm establishing a kingdom. I'm the king. I'm going to be seated on the throne. Right? God's will is going to be done on earth as it is done in heaven. God's people will be reconciled to him. They will experience God's nearness. Jesus was preaching the good news of the kingdom of God, right? You have been running away from me, but now you can stop. You have been evoking the wrath of God, but now I'm going to take that for you. You've been trying to earn your salvation on your own, but I'm going to give it to you freely. You don't need to live in the old covenant anymore. I'm inaugurating a new covenant. I'm establishing a new kingdom. You can be a part of it. You can stop, uh, you know, building your own little rebel kingdom where you are trying to be your own little rebel king and you can be a part of my eternal kingdom and you can pledge allegiance to the true, eternal, righteous, divine, savior, king. That's what Jesus came to preach, that the kingdom of God is here. And then he also says, and everyone forces his way into it. A number of scholars, uh, you know, a lot of scholars find this this verse puzzling. Uh, what does it mean to force your way into the kingdom of God? It just seems strange. There's any number of ways, but seemingly how, how the ESV renders it probably is, is the best, I think, that, that Jesus is preaching the good news of the kingdom of God, and the people that are going to enter into the kingdom of God, they have to actively try and press and fight and work to, to be to be a part of it. Now, we're... We're a Protestant church. We, we trace our lineage back to Martin Luther, John Calvin, the Protestant. the Protestant Reformation was a bunch of guys that, that protested against the Catholic Church. And they said, they said, you know, we assert that salvation is not by works, it's by faith. You trust in Jesus and he saves you instead of working and presenting your works to Jesus so that he will be impressed with you, right? Salvation comes by grace and not by merit. We don't think you can earn your salvation. You receive it as it's given to you freely. That's our... That's the lineage that we find ourselves in as, as a Protestant church, which at first glance, that might sound like salvation is easy, because it's not something that you have to do. It's not something you have to earn. It's just something that you can enjoy, right? Receive it, piece of cake. What could be easier than receiving something that I don't have to work for, than, than accepting something that's given freely to me? And that, in one sense, it is true, that, that becoming a Christian, being a Christian is easy, right? If you want to Be a faithful Muslim, you have to, you know, follow the five pillars. And if you want to be a faithful Buddhist, then you have to do the noble eightfold path. Or if you want to, whatever. Every religion has all these things that you're supposed to do. But Christianity says if you want to be a faithful Christian, you just have to receive the righteousness that Jesus has earned for you and that he has given freely to you. So it's very easy. But in another sense, being a Christian is incredibly difficult. It's incredibly hard. Because it requires, while it doesn't require uh, works that are presented to, to Christ as merit for us to have earned our salvation, it does require something of, of Christians. It requires something that is uh, entirely antithetical to, to just the very core of who, of who we are. It requires that we press back against every instinct that we've ever had. Trusting Christ and becoming a Christian requires that we repent of our sin, that we turn from our sin, and specifically that we, that we uh, practice self-denial. Right? That you, you know, to become a Christian, you have to look deep down at yourself and at your heart and at your soul, and you have to say, I am not good enough, and I cannot, I am incapable of earning God's favor. I cannot achieve salvation on my own. I need help. I need God to help me. I need Jesus to save me. And no one ever wants to say that. No one ever uh, likes admitting that they're not good enough, that they're not holy enough, that they're not righteous enough. And apart from the Holy Spirit, we won't admit that. We will fight against this idea that I am insufficient. I am broken. I am not okay with who I am. We'll fight against it until the day that we die, right? Our natural state is directed toward ourselves, right? I rely on myself. I take care of myself. I'm good enough myself. I want to enjoy myself. I don't want to listen to anyone except myself. Right? You, you could argue, rightly I think, that there's only one religion other than Christianity. And it's, uh, it's selfism. Selfism. Right? You, either, you either turn from yourself, deny yourself, and trust in Jesus and pledge allegiance to him, or you remain with yourself being your greatest allegiance. And you continue practicing this religion of selfism. And Jesus says, if you want to become a Christian, you have to recant. You have to apostatize away from that religion of selfism. You have to leave it, and you have to you know, come to Christ and prioritize Christ above yourself which is the most difficult thing that anyone could ever be asked to do. So at the exact same time, Christianity is both easy because we trust in what Christ has done, but it's also hard because we have to deny ourselves and we have to to repent of our sin that we would otherwise cling to. And in that sense... The only way that you can enter into the kingdom of God is by forcing your way into it, by by summoning, by, by you know, with grit, by galvanizing and, and pushing and forcing your way in, by taking the kingdom of God by violence, is what Jesus says in Matthew 11, a parallel passage. So, so uh, the idea is that no one falls backward. No one kind of takes the path of least resistance and just goes along with the flow and kind of falls backward into the kingdom of heaven. Regardless, I mean, if you grow up in a Christian family, live in a Christian culture, and like all of the dominoes are set to where you're going to end up a Christian, it still is like becoming a real Christian is not the path of least resistance. In fact. By definition, it is the path of, of most resistance. You have to fight, you have to press, you have to force. It's, it's uphill and it's, it's difficult. And Jesus is saying, if you want to be a part of the kingdom, you have to press through that resistance, force your way in. You have to determine to love God more than you love yourself through self-denial and repentance and faith in Christ. You have to, you have to mortify sin. You have to fight and press and force into the kingdom of God. So then you might hear verse 16 and think, okay, well, the law and the prophets, those are like a past tense idea. They were in effect until John. But now, the good news of the kingdom has come, and it's been, it's been preached. Great news. So, so, you know, for all of human history, God's law applied. We had to obey God. We had to do what God said. And then Jesus comes and says, I've got good news for you. You don't have to obey the law anymore. You can, do, you can live however you want, provided that you identify with Jesus, provided that you check the box and say, I am a part of God's kingdom. And Jesus says the law is not abolished by God. By, by the good news of the kingdom. Rather, it's fulfilled. It is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Paul addresses this exact line of reasoning in Romans chapter six. And he says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? And his response is, by no means. Absolutely not. Of, of course not, right? So, 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 um, you know, Much of human history prior to the incarnation and prior to the ministry of Jesus was ruled by the law. And when Jesus came, he established a new paradigm, a new way for God's people to relate to him. Through There is a newness to the new covenant. It is something different and better than the old covenant. All of that is true, and yet what's also still true is that God's law matters, and God's law is valid, and God's law is still in effect. In Matthew 5, Jesus says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law. I have come to fulfill the law. And the reason why God's law remains in effect through the new covenant is because God's law. There's something different about God's law than than human laws. Right? Uh, God's law is not, it wasn't created arbitrarily. It wasn't made up. God, God, we human laws are just kind of made up out of out of expedience, right? Don't Uh, you know, eat at the table, not in the living room, because I don't want to clean up crumbs out of the carpet. Uh, Don't roughhouse inside the house, because I don't want to buy a new lamp if you break it, right? Don't run by the pool, because I don't want to you know, I don't want to have to pay my deductible to, to take you to the emergency room. Like, like, all of these, we make up these rules, but the rules exist largely for expedience. Like, oh, this is, I'm going to arbitrarily determine this rule because it, is, it, it makes sense and it's helpful for me and it's helpful for the good of society. God's laws aren't like that. God's, God didn't arbitrarily make up his laws at any given point in time. God's law is an expression of the eternal, unchanging character of God. God didn't say, he wasn't like sitting in heaven thinking, yeah i uh, I don't like stealing, so let's make sure we add that to the list, no stealing or I don't like murder, so make sure we add that one to the list. like those those things are wrong but if, those things are wrong because god God's character is such that he he loves his people, right?" He wants to provide for his people. He would never steal from his people ever. So the law is you don't do that either. You be like me. I, I love my people and don't want to steal from them, so you love your people and don't steal from them. I love my people. I want them to live and thrive. I would never murder them, so you don't murder them, them either. The law of God is this like unchanging expression of the unchanging righteous character of, of God. And as such, it's not invalidated by the new covenant and by Jesus and his ministry of the gospel. Rather, it's fulfilled and it's upheld. So verse 14, uh, love God more than you love money. Verse 15, uh, seek the approval of God uh, rather than seeking the approval of other people. Verse 15, uh, Jesus establishes his kingdom and we enter into it through repentance and faith. And verse 17, uh, God's law remains because it's based on the unchanging, eternal character of God. And then finally, in verse 18, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a, divorced, he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Mm-hmm. It's one of several places in the New Testament where Jesus and others talk about marriage and divorce and remarriage. Uh, you can find the other ones, uh, Matthew 5, Matthew 19, Mark 10... 1 Corinthians 7. Those are kind of your main places to go to look at and uh, you know divorce and remarriage. Matthew 5, Matthew 19, Mark 10, 1 Corinthians 7, in addition to us here in, in Luke 16. Now what you'll see when you look at all of those passages is that more often than not, Jesus is being approached by Pharisees and they are asking him, what are your views on divorce and remarriage? It's like um, you know, it's kind of grandstanding a little bit, right? Like, what do you think about this? So, like, I want to get you on the record so that, that, you know, people who think otherwise can have reason to disagree with you or to dislike. This is a big, like, topic of debate, was divorce and remarriage. Is it allowed? And if so, what are the circumstances under which it is allowed? And there were entire rabbinic schools of thought Right, that that had the they kind of maintained these huge lists of all of the things that could justify divorce because really because they were jerks and, and losers and they were they didn't want to be faithful to their to their wives and they wanted to kind of have an opt out clause so that they could leave and go do what they wanted to do and stop taking care of their spouse uh, and they wanted to kind of feel justified in doing so and feel like God uh, wasn't called right. Some of the I mean, if you read through these lists that they kept, some of them say. You know, uh, you can divorce your spouse if she burns your the th- th- if she's making dinner, she burns the food. Then that is reason that you can write her a certificate of a divorce and put her away. Or literally, if you find another woman that you find more attractive, then you can write your current wife a certificate of a divorce and put her away and go marry that other person. And there were like there were rabbis teaching this in the ancient Near East, and it's kind of kind of icky kind of gross. And so Jesus, that's the, that's the context when Jesus is fielding these questions. What about divorce? What about re- remarriage? What do you think? Are you more lenient? Are you more tolerant? What do you, what do you look like? And Jesus says, that's, right, you guys are asking the wrong questions. The questions are not, uh, how can we build this huge list of all of these things that we can then justify leaving our spouse? The question is, uh, right, like, how, how can I stay with my spouse and remain faithful to them, uh, you know, right? What can I do to be as faithful as possible to my, my spouse to ensure that I don't leave? I mean, because these are males who are kind of in this male-dominated culture that males have all the resources, males have all the earning power, males have all the income. And so these guys are thinking, how can I figure out how to leave my, my spouse and not be committed to her anymore. And Jesus basically says, if you go back to the beginning of Genesis, you see that God made male and female. He made them to get married and then to remain faithful to one another and stay together. Moses might have allowed for divorce, but he did that because of your hardness of heart. That doesn't change the fact that God's original intention was for people to get married and then to stay together. So so Jesus's main idea on divorce and remarriage is that if, if at all possible, you should strive to remain married and strive to, to remain faithful to your spouse. Now, if you look at those other passages, Matthew 5, nineteen, Mark 10, 1 Corinthians 7, what you'll see is that uh, there are some caveats and there are some biblical grounds for divorce. So even though God prefers for marriages to stay intact, even though divorce grieves God's heart, there are cases in which the Bible permits it. So, Matthew 5 and Matthew 19, Jesus says these exact same words, but he adds a qualifier saying, except on the ground of, or in the case of, sexual immorality. So, sexual immorality would then be grounds for, if a person commits adultery, uh, then the offended spouse would have grounds for divorce. The Bible would permit that. They're not required to, right? If they choose to forgive and stay in the marriage, then they're more than welcome to do that, Like, frankly, like God has done for us. right? He has been faithful to us when we were unfaithful to, to him. But in the case of adultery, Jesus says that divorce is a permissible option. Another one, uh, Romans, this one kind of goes without saying, but it's, it's worth mentioning because Paul does. In Romans 7, Paul says, if your spouse dies, then you're not bound to them anymore. So, so if your spouse dies, then you are free to, to marry someone else should you desire to do so. And then 1 Corinthians 7 kind of gives us this third, this third grounds, which is uh, desertion or, or abandonment. Paul, Paul says if a, if a believer is married to an unbeliever, and the unbeliever decides to leave the marriage, then, then let, you can let them go. And you're no longer bound to them, and uh, you are free to remarry should you desire to, to do so. So you know maybe two unbelievers get married. And at some point along the way, one of these two people hears the gospel, turns to Christ, becomes a Christian. And then the unbelieving spouse says, I did not sign up for that. I, I don't want to be a Christian. I don't want this to be a Christian home. I'm not going to church. I don't want to read the Bible with our kids. I don't want us to teach our kids about Jesus. And then the Christian spouse, according to 1 Corinthians 7, could say, I love you. I want to remain married to you, but I love God more. So I'm gonna read my Bible, I'm gonna teach our kids the Bible, and you know, if you wanna stay, please stay. But if that makes you want to leave, I can't force you to stay. And an unbeliever can leave the marriage and the believing spouse is not bound to them anymore. Or kind of the, the flip side, right? So Maybe two Christians get married, and at some point, one of those two people just punts the faith and says, I'm not a Christian anymore. I'm not going to go to church anymore. I'm going to stop investing in the spiritual well-being of my family. Same thing. If they want to remain married, by all means, let them. But if they want to leave the marriage, then the Christian spouse who gets abandoned is no longer bound to them. Now, what I would also argue is that this, this idea of desertion or abandonment that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 7 uh, can be understood to include other kinds of things as well. Consistent, perpetual, high-handed, unrepentant sin, physical abuse, emotional or verbal abuse. Right? Right? If, if there's a spouse who uh, is, is threatening or hurting or repeatedly sinning against their spouse in a way that's egregious or that puts them in danger, then I think you can make a case that for all intents and purposes, they have abandoned their spouse they have abandoned their marriage vows and they've walked away from from God even if they claim to be a believer right even so if there's if there's a guy who says I love God I love my wife I want to remain here in the church and I want to remain married to her but he's beating his wife and she is like showing up to church with bruises from where he has hit her then then that guy has abandoned his wife. He, he has shown himself to be an unbeliever, and he's abandoned his marriage, and so therefore that wife would have grounds, I think, uh, to pursue divorce uh, by, by virtue of the fact that her husband has abandoned God and abandoned her. So those are some of the, the, te- the Bible's teachings on divorce and, and remarriage. We kind of see a snapshot of it here in Luke 16, but if you turn to Matthew 5, 19, Mark 10, and 1 Corinthians 7, you'll kind of see it unpacked in a little more Uh, detail. Divorce is not ideal. The goal is to preserve the marriage, stay married, repent, forgive, reconcile. Unlike the Pharisees thought, it's sinful to divorce your spouse for trivial reasons. Um, God wants us people to stay married, and yet in certain circumstances, um, divorce is permitted, and if that happens, Christians are free to remarry, and it's not necessarily sinful. That's it, right? Verse fourteen: Love God more than you love money. Fifteen: Seek the approval of God instead of seeking the approval of others. Verse sixteen: Enter into God's kingdom through repentance and faith. Verse seventeen: God's law remains because God's character never changes. And then verse eighteen: Love your spouse and be faithful to them and stay with them for your whole life, except under certain and except under certain circumstances that are outlined elsewhere. And of course, the 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 idea behind all of this is that that's what. Jesus has done for us, right? Jesus loved us enough, right? Jesus loved us more than he loved money. He loved us enough to come and die on the cross for us to save us. Jesus Jesus cared more about the approval of God than he cared about the approval of others. If he cared about the approval of his fellow man, he would not have persisted and fulfilled this mission to die on a cross for sinners. He would have taken some other path, right? Jesus practiced self-denial and lived for the sake of others and not himself. He obeyed the law of God and he fulfilled it. And ultimately Jesus was faithful to his people. Jesus was faithful to the church, his spouse, his bride, as it were. Right? He never left her, he never abandoned her. He gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without stain or wrinkle, or any other blemish, that she might be holy and blameless the words of the apostle paul in ephesians chapter five that's who jesus is and that's what he has done for us and that's what jesus is calling us to do for one another as his people let's pray together father in heaven we thank you for what you've done to save us we thank you that you sent your son jesus to die on the on the cross for our sins we thank you that we can have new life in Jesus. We pray, Lord, that we could respond accordingly. We pray that we could love you more than we love money. We pray that we could care more about pleasing you than we care about pleasing other people. We pray that we could be people who practice self-denial and repentance. And We pray that we could be faithful husbands and wives and mothers and fathers so that we could bring glory to your name. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.